From Engaged Cornell, I'm Natalie Breikoff, and this is Shifting and Shaping, a podcast on community members who are shaping a new American paradigm. Imagine you've done everything right your entire life, only to suddenly face the threat of deportation to a country that you know nothing about. Outraged after the Trump administration announced it's rescinding DACA. Next month, the Supreme Court will hear arguments on the Obama-era program, which has protected hundreds of thousands of individuals. They were brought to the U.S. by their parents illegally when they were children. The issue before the court is whether the Trump administration acted legally when it sought to terminate the program in 2017. In the fall of 2019, I wanted to better understand how Cornell University members were affected in the face of a pending DACA Supreme Court case. I had no idea that what I had been searching for was someone I saw almost every day. My freshman residence hall director, Amadou Fofana. I spoke to Amadou over several months. The first time was Saturday, February 8th, 2020. My name is Amadou and I'm a dreamer. I was born in the Gambia and I was raised by my grandmother for the first five years of my life. During that time, my parents migrated to the Bronx and had a visa um, to visit. Um, I was then brought over um, at that time when I was about five. While Amadou's family was living in New York, his parents filed for an adjustment of their status, and that is when they became undocumented. And I just remember the challenges that they face and just like hearing about it of, of how much money it costs and um, not being able to provide the information that was needed to make that adjustment. I think ultimately my parents just want us to be, to be happy, to be successful, um, and to be positive members of the community and to be able to give back. And I think for me, being a dreamer means helping to accomplish my parents' dream um, and to be able to have more opportunities that they could afford living in the Gambia. The United States immigration law is clear. It is illegal to be in the United States without documentation. However, DACA status provides additional protections. I spoke with Cornell Law student Sarah DeYoung about the legal benefits of having DACA status. DACA is great compared to the alternative because if you are in the DACA program, you can get a social security number you can get a driver's license, and you can get a work permit. And of course- And apply for financial aid. And yes, and apply, and it depends, right. And depending on the state, you know, you might even qualify for in-state tuition in some places. For the two years that your DACA participation is valid, right, the two years before you have to renew, you know, the ICE is instructed to just not pay attention people in the DACA program, that they are not to be targeted for deportation, there's no pathway to citizenship. There's no possibility to become a permanent resident. There were these parameters that, you know, um, enrollees had to have entered the U.S. before their 16th birthday. They had to have lived continually in the U.S. since uh, June 15th, 2007. And you had to be under the age of 31 on June 15th, 2012. This is a murky and confusing moment in a long history of American immigration. There is a lot of uncertainty. I question whether I'm good enough. 
right, for this society, for this country to, to be called an American? What are the things I need to do to get that piece of paper that is supposed to allow me to be free? And I've been really having to reframe my paradigm about, uh, about what that means, because my humanity shouldn't be tied to a piece of paper, and my value shouldn't be tied to, to that either. Since being involved in different grassroots organizations, I've realized the impact of being able to say that I'm here, I'm proud to be undocumented, and regardless of what the media may portray out there, I'm going to speak about my truth. Although I had known Amadou for over a year, this would be the first time that I would hear his story. As I sat face to face with Amadou, the gravity of this reality set in. At this point in my life, like, there's very few things that I fear, right? Mm -hmm. um, I went from being afraid of my status, and there have been, you know, people in relationships that I've, that I've had that were surprised of my status, and between, at this point, between interactions with, with police, right, just as a black man in this country and having ICE visit our home as well, I think those have really shaped the way I think about who I am and the way that I show up. And those things don't define me still. Um, they have helped continue to build um, some really tough skin and help build character, but also recognize, and for me, I think about, you know, what it means to be optimistic, but also a realist in this country. When I conducted my interview with Amadou this past February, he was under immense psychological stress, awaiting a terrifying Supreme Court verdict that had the power to strip him of his DACA status and derail his entire life. But it's, it's really challenging right now because of where we are at politically and the fact that there are people that are being deported at an alarming rate. Um, and what does it mean if I were to be taken away you know, tomorrow? There's so much uncertainty, there's so much heaviness I know for me personally in my heart, trying to figure out what happens after my DACA expires, right? What happens if I'm not able to renew? Um, and what does that mean for me and the family that I support right now? And what would it mean if I was no longer here at Cornell? Does that, does that matter for folks, right? If millions of people were to be, you know, quote unquote, sent back home, what does that say about our country? The enforcement of immigration law has always been full of ambiguity and it affects all different identities and communities across the United States. These are folks that are reaching for their dreams and, and starting businesses, um, creating homes, um, educating themselves for the better of, of not only their humanity, but the world around them. And we have to understand that it also impacts folks from Asian, Asian American background and island Pacificers, um, folks that are black and from the Caribbean islands. There are also folks from European de descent that are also undocumented and the ways that people become undocumented um, are so vast, right? Not everybody crosses a border necessarily um, or a landmark. Some people um, have lived in this country and just finding out that they are undocumented. From New York, Amadou's family later moved to Wisconsin. That's when I really realized my how my identity showed up in those spaces. Um, so I think just first being Black in America, right? We went from a really diverse city um, living in the Bronx to kind of rural America. And at that point is when I really started to, to have a better understanding of what it meant to be undocumented as I was trying to go through what was kind of the normal stages of life for a young child. A critical moment in Amadou's childhood was when he was 16, 
and realized the gravity that his status would not allow him to get a driver's license. And that was really a pivotal point in my life where I started to have deeper conversations and was really kind of pushing the issue with my parents. They were trying to protect me and shield me from their efforts of trying to change their status within a system where, you know, they were given bad advice by lawyers, they were taken advantage by lawyers and paying a lot of money to try to change that status and, and not receiving the outcome desired. According to the Migration Policy Institute, DACA recipients are almost as likely as U.S. citizens to be enrolled in higher education, yet they are far less likely to have completed college. I see the students that are here at Cornell now and the challenges that they face, and I, and I see myself in them so, so much, right? Like, to be on a college campus, to try to figure out, to be able to to have money to be able to afford books, to be able to um, afford housing on campus or somewhere close by, or even to be able to help family back home, wherever they are. The financial burden of being an undocumented student or coming from mixed status family is, is really challenging. So, I mean, I vividly remember like in undergrad going like, being an RA because that meant that I had housing paid for, right? But during my first two years, I didn't have that scholarship piece. So I was also working um, and nannying for four different families to be able to like make it financially, to be able to pay for books. But also, um, I still felt this obligation to, to support my family. You know, my parents were going through a divorce at that time and I had two younger sisters at home. Some students might be the only one in their family that can qualify for a work permit. There are some that are, are having to balance being 18 and 19 year old, right? But also being a parent and being a second parent at times for their family members. And so what does it mean to have, to have uh, parents and younger siblings that are also looking for that financial help to be able to make it through and thrive? I spoke to Vijay Pendiker, Cornell University's Dean of Students, and Presidential Advisor on Diversity and Equity on the challenges of being a college student with DACA status. I think more unique to being a dreamer while you're in college and at Cornell uh, is the additional psychological pressure that our DACA status students talk about with constantly wondering whether their legality in this country, whether their status at any moment might be revoked and how that might affect them. If they come from a mixed status family, how that might affect members of their family. What we know about learning is that non-cognitive factors have a bearing on cognitive performance. So if you're constantly experiencing anxiety about uh, whether a significant portion of, of your safety and security as a person is at stake, it's difficult then to focus on the high performance tasks of, of moving through courses and pursuing graduation. Many of our DACA students um, will share stories of while they have DACA, they might have a sibling that is fully undocumented, uh, or they have parents with mixed status where one parent has um, some sort of legal standing and another parent might be fully undocumented. And so there's a lot of home dynamics to manage that can translate into a significant stress, anxiety, and worry for the student themselves. What do you think are some of the ways that students on campus could act as allies to the DACA community? 
So the first and foremost type of allyship that I would recommend towards our dreamer student community is to engage in empathy and listening and to hear people's story the way they're trying to represent themselves. And that's somewhat missing in our society right now and, and is an important corrective to, to the national conversation. You have to figure out when you're engaged in a relationship with someone or a conversation with someone, how do they want to be treated on this issue? Do they want to talk about it or do they not want to talk about it? And, and what that takes is asking <laughs> and um, exhibiting uh, a very basic human relational skill of, of not assuming. Another form of allyship comes in thinking carefully about the need for members of the dreamer community to maybe be really low-key about uh, who they are and to want to stay off the radar given we don't know what's going to happen um, in the coming years around their status. And so if you're in the habit of recording people and taking lots of photos and, and putting stuff out there without seeking consent, to really ask some critical questions about whether that's respectful and to, to understand that um, you might actually be producing risk in that. Within weeks of these interviews, the COVID-19 virus ravaged through our country. Breaking news tonight, the urgent new coronavirus warning, the staggering number of hospitalizations. It feels as if smoked like a pack of cigarettes in a blizzard. Officials pleading with young people, observe social distancing guidelines as U.S. cases... I was sent home from Cornell University to finish my semester remotely. And in the meantime, I spoke on the phone with Amadou every two weeks. On Thursday, June 18th, in a 5-4 decision, Chief Justice John Roberts, writing with the liberals, found that President Trump and his administration acted unlawfully when they ended the DACA program. Despite the recent Supreme Court decision, there is still a lot of uncertainty for what the future will hold for the DACA program. With the recent Supreme Court case, right, where the Trump administration, they just tried to get rid of DACA. So when the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that, they, the Supreme Court didn't hold that no president, that it would be impossible to get rid of DACA. Yes, it, it is within the president's power to get rid of DACA. But the reason that the Supreme Court held that what the Trump administration had done was unlawful is because there's a certain statute called, um, known as the APA. It basically says, okay, if you are going to change some kind of agency regulation or agency program, you have to have a good reason for doing it. You have to explain your reasoning and you can't just get rid of these programs for uh, what's called arbitrary and capricious reasons. So, you know, if a later administration wanted to get rid of the DACA program, but they did a better job explaining their reasoning, why they are changing this uh, regulation, why they're changing this procedure, and it's not arbitrary and capricious. It's not a permanent exactly. decision. There's no permanence. It's almost like, okay, well, DACA is safe for now, but who knows what's going to happen with the next administration, or is it going to survive these next legal challenges? As the election race approached November 3rd. Arizona out west is in play two reasons president is unpopular there, just as he is nationally. Americans mourned over 200,000 coronavirus deaths. I prayed, and then the doctor took the phone, and he said, I'm sorry, but there's no more pulse. And then I played our wedding song for him. And then, um, and then that was it. 
and the murders of black and brown Americans by the police. That's become the rallying cry for supporters of racial justice in America. The catalyst, the death of George Floyd, a black man who died in police custody after a white officer knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes. An America steeped in a history of racism, inequality, and inequity had shown its raw wounds time and time again. I had gone back to school to learn remotely and still caught up with Amadou over the phone every couple of weeks. We met for the first time since our March interview under a tree on Cornell's art squad. It was November 8th, just days after Joe Biden was victoriously announced as the president-elect. Long time no see. I like your hat. Thank you. It's actually from this local Kids of Immigrant group. They have a bunch of, like, swag. A lot has changed since the last time that we spoke. But it's been a roller coaster, honestly, to say the least. I also got married. Then Congrats. just like, thank you, a beautiful thing to enjoy. We need all the great things yeah. that we can take and consume in That's 2020. That's awesome. Every week and almost every day, there's like a little bit of information that we do receive, and then it just sparks a train of thoughts about what if and where, where do we go from here. But now that Joe Biden is our next president-elect, I think it, it, it has provided a like really huge sense of relief um, in terms of worst possible scenario in terms of what could happen next, specifically with the immigration system. But at least our country voted in a way that provides some hope that there's, there's still a good sense of community and like what it means to be American and not a, as much of like an us versus them. Are you optimistic? Are you just riding the wave? <laughs> no, I'm always like optimistically pessimistic. There have just been days where sleep is not enough, right? Like getting a meal is not enough. Like my soul is just exhausted from the things that are, are compounding. Um, and yeah. I just need to find an escape. So sometimes it's cooking a great meal. Sometimes it's dancing. Sometimes it's just finding nature. community. Sometimes it's nature. After the trial, how was, I'm sure that was like so nerve, beyond comprehension, just like nerve wracking. Yeah, uh, very anxiety. Do you, do you feel like a sense of relief now? It's, a, it's one of those double-edged swords where it doesn't quite feel not, like we've yeah. won the overall war mm -hmm. like this is a really cool well, this is a battle. big win yeah the this is a really election, big win. obviously and I, and I and i hope folks take the, a moment to enjoy that right because i think it has been a lot of additional pressure that folks have been feeling for a long long time the war isn't over and i think for folks that have been in the immigration world that you know just how slow things can change um and while things may look good we know that there's still a lot of work behind doors that need to occur I wanted to reflect with Amadou on the results of this polarizing election, which in some states, victory was determined in razor-thin margins. I asked Amadou how he felt we as a country should move forward to advocate for immigration reform. There was over 70 million people that voted on either side of the ticket. So when you think about, right, people having a different frame of mind and a different perspective about a topic, there are a lot of people that do. But in order for us to be in a place where we can 
um, can have better understanding, like we have to start having those conversations. And that's why mm -hmm. I think like, again, for our allies, like this is now is what more do you think is being an ally? I mean, I think it's it's deciding that um, you have stake an investment in an issue because of your moral compass. You believe that everybody deserves to be treated like a human being. You believe that people deserve dignity and people deserve respect. And for that, you're going to fight for these issues that don't necessarily maybe align with that, right? Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do we seek out and help and reach out to other folks and say, hey, I'm willing to help, help be on the front lines and asking for the type of support that you need because your identities right now put you so much at risk, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I feel think, like everybody's like a child of the universe. Everybody has mm -hmm. a stake in everything and some people have larger stakes than other people. We have one earth, we really do. And I think I wish that more people recognize that, that our, that your liberation and your freedom is intertwined with mine and vice yeah. versa. And in order for us, again, like to really be- we live really in the same be, community. Yeah, right? Unless to, for us to really experience that sense of community, mm -hmm. you have to be willing to say, I am willing to do whatever to support you in making sure that your humanity is well respected and vice versa. If we're not showing up for each other, then what do we have, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like really crazy that like in our community, there's still this conceptual divide on things that should just be like intrinsic yeah. human rights. Yeah. I think about like, how do you get to the root of people? Like what makes, what makes you wake up every day and want to get going, right? If we can build some rapport and community around that in our relationship, then we can get to, you know, all the policy stuff mm -hmm. and the trauma that has come with that in our society and, and the impacts of migration. That type of advocacy and that level of consistency of advocacy. I think we would we would see more of the cultural and societal changes happen a lot quicker. Amadou feels that he needs to show up as an ally to this movement as well. Not only am I a member of the community, but I have to be an active participant in the ways that we talk about change and are fighting for change. We need everybody at the table. Um, we need folks to be able to listen to our narratives, our journeys, our stories, and practice some critical hope. Before talking to Amadou, I had no concept of what the failings of the immigration system looked like on our Cornell campus. It is important to actively pry ourselves from the subjectivity of our own wilderness. Amadou puts it simply. Time is of the essence, and, and I think we just need to, to grant everybody and find a meaningful path towards citizenship um, that'll allow folks to, um, to live a life that doesn't feel so weighted. And we just need folks to recognize we are far better and stronger together. Um, and remember that this is the land of, of immigrants, right? Um, this is a huge melting pot. I think we're all connected in one way or another. Um, and I think when we can open up our eyes and, and find time and space to, to build community, we recognize that we have more in common than we do um, that are different. You know, there is no single issue, right? All things are interconnected. Um, and in order for us to be good social justice advocates and allies, we have to be willing to work together. America will look to the Biden administration to see what the future is for the DACA program. 
In the meantime, to assist DACA and undocumented students at colleges in the Ithaca area, you can donate to the Tompkins County Immigrant Rights Coalition. That's it for Shifting and Shaping. I'm Natalie Breikoff. See you next week.